And I, and I think that that was the first time I really, you know, got to, got my head around what racism was. My older sister explained it to me because I just really didn't understand why are they doing that? What does this mean? And my sister, you know, just turned to me and said, they did that because we're black. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Humanize. Today, we have Jeff Campbell as our guest. Jeff, welcome so much. Thank you for having, wait, wait, welcome to the show. Not welcome, welcome so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, under, I, I understood what you were trying to say. I like say. it. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, and uh, thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> we need maybe we need subtitles to translate out of like the or early morning fog <laughs> into English. <laughs> right. Um, but Jeff, Jeff has a really interesting story based in Denver. Um, Jeff is a guerrilla storyteller, a pioneering hip hop artist and spoken word artist and arts educator. And he was named one of Westward's 100 Colorado creatives. Um, he has written numerous plays. Uh, he's a writer of critically acclaimed Who Killed Jigaboo Jones, as well as many others that have been performed in Denver. And his latest work, Message to the Mayor, um, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page and on our YouTube channel, um, was released in February of this year. And it's a firsthand account of traumatic displacements of people experiencing homelessness during a global pandemic in Denver. And those on the front lines appealing to the city government to recognize their humanity. His production company, Emancipation Theater, is a performance arts social enterprise dedicated to gathering the community to share stories and inspire action. So I'm so excited to hear from you today. I mean, basically what Jeff is doing around community organizing and anti-racism work is really really fascinating, especially from the arts lens. You know, I think we talk a lot on this show about a political lens. Um, and so I'm, I'm really curious. So thank you so much for being here, Jeff. <laughs> right on. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Courtney. I really appreciate it. Having the opportunity to, to, to share my story with you. That's awesome. That's awesome. And just another thing to input here. I, um, art and activism and um, cultural setting things are very important to me. You know, um, as a, when someone asks me what my profession is, I never say a doctor, I would say a social entrepreneur and hopefully a cultural trendsetter, you know? And so I, I appreciate the work that you, you do and, um, and really appreciate you for being here. And thank you so much. Thank you. I super appreciate it. I think that uh, 
community organizing and uh, entertainment, they go hand in hand. Mm. And I think that people don't normally think of it that way, uh, but the components to uh, creating a uh, successful production is not different than you know, cultivating something or a rally or a protest or anything like that, any sort of advocacy work. The, the outreach uh, mechanisms are the same and the point is the same. You wanna deliver, you know, a message that when people leave, they're better off, you know, leaving that particular event uh, with, with another level of awareness or appreciation or uh you know inspired to 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 support in in a very significant way so i think that um you know it was just a natural progression to work in the community organizing realm that yeah that that makes sense as soon as you started saying that i was i was imagining you know a rally and how people how people speak how people get people you know kind of whipped up and focused and that yeah that makes perfect sense perfect sense and you so Jeff's work, which we're going to hear about in a little bit, is most current iteration or one of the most current iterations, a 90-day program from allies to abolitionists. So I'm wondering if you can, speaking of the arts, I don't know if you have any art zones. I'm kind of imagining, you know, the part in Hamilton where she's singing Satisfied and they're rewinding the stage and going back in time. <laughs> um take us back in time. Like I, I'd love to hear about your story and how, you know you got from being a young kid to, to doing this work, allies to abolitionists. So could you, yeah, let's hear about you. Well, I've done uh, community organizing in the past, mm -hmm. but I've always been an artist uh, ever since I was a young person. I actually grew up in rural, in rural Colorado. I grew up in Longmont, Colorado. I went to Skyline high school mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm, we moved there when I was four years old. And I can remember uh, one time coming home from church in Boulder. We went to Second Baptist Church in Boulder. And I can remember coming home from church one day to the N-word written on our window oh. in soap and eggs all over our house. Mm. And the two boys that did that um, they were neighbors that lived right down the block and they were in the front yard finishing the job, throwing the eggs at the when we pulled up. And my dad jumps out of the car in his three piece suit oh. <laughs> and chases them down. You know, my dad graduated from Alabama A&M. You know, he, he was a punt returner. So, I mean, <laughs> they weren't prepared, you know, he, he chased them down and and grabbed them and took them to uh, their house. And uh, those two young boys had to clean our house. You know, their, their parents came out and they cleaned our house. And I, and I think that that was the first time I really, you know, got to, got my head around what racism was. My older sister, explained it to me because I just really didn't understand why are they doing that? Mm. What does this mean? And my sister, you know, just turned to me and said, they did that because we're black. Mm. And 
you know, we had moved from Alabama, from rural Alabama to rural Colorado, and it was literally like night and day. And I don't know if I would be a performer had I not been in that uh, alienated like that, had I not been an anomaly in my, uh, you know, in school, the only black kid in my class. And um, so I was teased a lot and called names a lot. And I remember when it shifted for me uh, becoming a class clown, there was a, a girl, her name was Heather. And we had to write stories uh, for our class. And so she wrote her story about a monkey named Jeff. Oh, wow. Who sat in his seat sideways. And so I used to always sit in my seat sideways because kids were always throwing stuff at me or, you know, making fun of me or pointing at me. So I was always trying to keep my eye on them. And I remember at this point, I was in third grade. Hmm. Uh, she called it a monkey named Jeff. And so I started making monkey noises and woo, 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 woo. I started doing that. And all the kids laughed. And even my teacher laughed. And at that point, I began to use humor and being a class clown as a way to deter the hatred and the and kids making fun of me. I used to be chased home from school every day with rocks and spit and oh fists. And I would run. And then the older kids, uh, like the sixth graders and stuff, they they noticed and they started escorting me uh, home mm. every day, waiting for me to walk me home. And uh, so they uh, they looked out for me. Mm. So that was the kind of uh, atmosphere that really began to, you know, shape my personality. And, and in that moment, I was having an existential crisis. I was saying to myself, like, what would it be like if I were not black? Hmm. Or what would it be like if we would have stayed hmm. in Alabama, in Decatur, and not uh, moved here? What would my life be like? So at this very young age, I was having these like existential. Third grade? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah questions that I was asking myself, but, you know, class clown just became so natural for me that I, um, by the time I got to high school, I did forensics, speech and debate and speech and debate. They have this category called humorous interpretation mm. where you take a piece of literature and you do a 10 minute excerpt of this piece of literature. And so I started doing that and I thought that I was funny and, and uh, my speech coach uh, gave me a piece of literature to interpret. Um, and it was called The Green Pastures by an author named Mark Connolly, which was a 1920 minstrel that my teacher gave me a minstrel play to perform and gave me directions on how to portray these characters. And, you know, my parents were just happy that I had something that I could get involved in and they really didn't, you know, pay attention too much. 
And they are also, you know, they're from Decatur, Alabama. They're from a place in the 60s. They're from a place where the racism that I was facing was a warm up, was a <laughs> in comparison uh, to mm-hmm. what what they had grew up in. So they weren't, you know, they were like, you know, go to school, boy, you, you go to school, you go to church, you get your schooling. You know, they weren't. They weren't um, mm-hmm. social justice warriors, to put it that way. <laughs> and so, you know, I I won state yeah. and I even went to nationals and placed fourth in nationals using this minstrel play where this white teacher had coached me on how to portray black characters. And um, so that was just, you know, the backdrop. That, that, yeah. It, when you think about it. I now, mean, it's really <laughs> yeah, that would not play out now. <laughs> right. Wow. And so, so you know, uh, as I became an adult and as I became politicized by hip hop, mainly Public Enemy, X Clan, Poor Righteous Teachers, Brand Nubian. I mean, that was my era. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the eighties, nineties, and and. As they begin feeling you over there, he's nodding. There you, he, you can't there see Gordy, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I feel, I, I feel you. Chuck, Chuck did a, you know, he he really he helped me out, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> it gave me another new sense of identity. And once I re- realized how exploited I had been, mm-hmm. you know, I began to shift, and um, I was a little more serious at that point. And then I began to to do music and I started to, to rap and I was rapping and, um, you know, so, and the majority of my, uh, performance experience really is in, in music. Now, when I graduated from Mm -hmm. high school, I got accepted to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, but my parents were like, you know, we ain't sending you to California to do more clowning. You you know, if you want to go to a, (laughs) You want to go to a, you know, a regular college, we'll help you out, but we ain't supporting that. And so my desire to be a performer, you know, took me out to California where I started working for record labels and stuff. And I worked for a record label called Black Market Records. And there was a brother on there by the name of X-Rated who went to prison for uh, murder, for shooting a... um, anti-gang activist in Sacramento, California. And here I am, this country bumpkin kid from rural white ass Colorado running around with these hard knuckleheads, real knuckleheads that, you know, it was really no joke. And I remember doing promotion for them, hanging up posters and the poster said, on trial for murder, the evidence, his album. And so they were really just trying to exploit the case. And uh, long story short, long story longer, I um, <laughs> I came back to Colorado, not thinking I was going to do music ever again, but met folks in the music community, in the hip hop community in Denver. And then I began to... Uh, do music in in Denver under the name mm-hmm. Apostle. Awesome. 
So um, that's kind of like that's kind of that that uh, timeline to there to get yeah. me to Colorado. So and that's where wow. like, professional stuff began, because in 94 is when I is when I published my first uh, cassette and CD. Cassette. Uh, <laughs> I remember those. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, man. Whew. That's 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 amazing. Thank you. I was going to just ask, are you willing, are you willing to share, you know, a, a, a piece of either a song or an excerpt or a spoken word piece or a poem or just a little, you know. Sure, sure. I, yeah, I could do a little piece. Put you on the spot. When the people have lost faith in the elections and the so-called leaders push fear and protection from a mythical enemy with national security and the military supremacies, the corporate dependency. See, these are the signs of the rise of the fascists, a continued marginalization between the classes and mass media is consolidated and controlled and music becomes mindless and without soul. When there's no respect for intellect in the art forms, sexism is expected and considered the norm. Labor workers abused and denied their human rights while the voice of resistance falls silent in the night. Will America heed the warning signs early of what happened in the 1930s in Germany or will we give in, give up and give away our freedom gradually for a so-called morality? When fallen gods find themselves powerless pawns of another man's system against all odds. And most of us spend our prime time behind bars, unaware our very essence is the sun, moon, and stars. When correctional facilities are full of illiteracy and the connection is no mystery. Plagued with poor self-identity because you don't know your history and popular worldview reinforces the tendency. See, if we don't know where we've been, then we don't know where we're at, then we don't know where we're going. And that's the reason I'm flowing because knowledge is the key to unlock the hell and return to the glory from whence we fell. I studied Garvey and Elijah, oh, can't you tell? I want to see truth and justice balanced on the scale, but you can't free people who don't know they are slaves. That's why we remain locked in our mental grave, but... When we live in love and light and lyrics lecture by night, electrified by the mic and amplified left and right, speakers equalize, volumes peak, sound of distortion. My voice cracked with passion. I put the crowd in motion, born to manifest creation, a polyrhythmic vibration to capture the imagination of a disenfranchised population, inspiring the mobilization towards self-determined liberation because collective emancipation requires your participation when oil companies report record-breaking profit margins and 800 million people in the world are starving, and 40 million people in Africa have a disease manufactured in the government labs, and the salaries of athletes playing for the nation exceed the federal spending on public education, and every year we circumcise over two million girls. Someday I'll write the song that could change the world, but will we ever recognize where the real power lies? Are we ready to live? Are we willing to die? This is a movement. Don't let it pass you by, a revolution. And only the strong survive. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yo, you made my day, man. Like I was I was just came back to life. Courtney just came back to life. Did you see that? Oh (laughs) wow. Yo, my man, that's that's dope. I, I right on, right on. Thank you. one of the line that has hit me is kind of reminded me of the Harriet Tubman quote. They didn't even know you can't be free if you never know you're a slave, you know. And so 
uh, this work that Emily and I do uh, about raising awareness about the systems that are in existence today that keep us um, oppressed and suppressed is is, is a, a lifelong goal. You know, um, I, I feel blessed to be in this room with Emily and now like for you to be here, just articulate that at a time in our country where raising awareness is something that's put on the back burner and we just are are made to accept because it's safe. And when I say safe, even when you think about slavery, it was safer to be a slave than it was to ever think about freedom. Absolutely. You, you know, and it was like, just like you, your, your, your parents, they, they, I'm sure they loved you, you know, I know they did, but they were being safe. They, they figured when we came from Alabama, that was real racism. Now you in Colorado, shut the hell up and go to school, you know? And so just to the perspectives that, there's no hierarchy on pain. If you feel, you know what I mean? Like, I feel as though, especially people of color, you know, a lot of times we put, I've been in jail for 50 years. You only been in jail for two, you know? <laughs> so now the 50, the 50 year dude thinking like he got some, some, some equity on him, you know, some, some power, right. you know, and not knowing that we are all slaves to a situation that is capitalizing on um on us, you know? And so like for just what you said, your story and, and how you just artistically talked about almost every system, you know, that was, wow. You, you, that, that was, thank you. I needed that this morning, man. Well, thank I you. I needed that. Thank you. I, I super appreciate that. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, it's so difficult now uh, because the game has changed in the sense that uh, structural, institutional, and systemic bias is not something that folks are willing to, to confront. But every time you look at the structure, every time you look at the institution, every time you look in the system, the bias exists. It's there. Every time you look at it and analyze it, from a factual context, you can see the discrepancy. You can see, you know, um, you know, the marginalization. It's there if you look at it. And mm -hmm. folks refuse to look at it. And denial is is the biggest weapon against it mm. for the benefactors thereof, you know, those who mm -hmm. benefit from the division, mm -hmm. who benefit from uh being able to create this this hierarchical structure in the economic system um, and class. Yeah. So it's there no matter what we do, but it's a whole lot harder to pinpoint uh, when folks are co constantly minimizing it and pointing to Jay-Z and Oprah. <laughs> so, oh, right. Yeah, so well, it's so, it's so crazy. Winfrey. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Like, but Oprah, you, but Obama, yeah. but Obama, oh. right? Obama, yeah. yeah. But Obama. I was, I was just gonna say that, Emily. I was just gonna say that. I was watching Fox News, and I know people look at me like, "Why the hell are you watching Fox News?" Because I need to know. And and so I even I, I I had a exercise with some of the students that I work with at this at um at risk school here in Estes, and so I showed perspectives of from CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, just to show up a different perspectives. Because we were talking about 
institutionalized racism and does it exist, does it not exist? CNN said, yes, it exists. MNC, yes, it exists. Fox News called in Candace Owens, which is an African-American woman, right. another black guy, a black guy, and they said, no, it does not exist. And the black guy was a civil rights lawyer. And he said he really wishes that black people would stop with institutional, institutional racism and systemic racism and, and stop perpetuating their lie. And Laura Ingram comes on and says, yeah, it's not like we had a two-term black president. And I was like, there it is. Yeah. It's always right, right there. <laughs> it's, it, I, I was waiting. If I was a gambling man. I would have bet big money right. on that. <laughs> And and it would have it would have went to the bank because it's like you have people like uh oh Michael Jordan makes millions LeBron makes millions now you Obama two two year term two term president Obama did not have power presidents do not have power if you know government don't is this is why I always talk about the illusion of creating change and actually creating change are two different things right you put a you put a black man in office and now you say see. America is exceptional, but then Congress was obstructing everything that he had to do. So he was just a face of a possibility that in reality, he could have, he couldn't have done really what he wanted to do because everything was no, 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 you know? And so I, it, it, what you just said and what Emily always says is that we always throw those, the, the crumbs, take these crumbs and appreciate that. And shut the hell up and continue to perpetuate and, and push and, and have blinders on to the actual systemic and the DNA and the and, and the and the culture that exists since the inception of this country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that some folks really believe that because Barack Obama was in office, there's no such thing as racism. I believe that there are people who actually believe that. And then I believe folks that are weaponizing that or who are using that to cover racism that, that are actually actually know the truth and are just using uh, those things for for argument's sake. But, you know, you can't corner those people and sit them down and ask them to look at facts and ask them to look at how did we get here? Why is there a disparity between, you know, economically from, you know, from community to community? Mm-hmm. Why is there, you know, what are the the indicators of the proliferation of crime? You know, mm-hmm. uh, why do these things mm-hmm. in the education system seem to perpetuate? You know, and why is our quality of life drastically different? You know, and if you sit down and you look at why, every time you will see that, you know, structural, institutional and systemic bias, racism is the factor over and over again. And and it it is really undeniable and silly to argue with folks who 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 pretend like that's not the truth. It's silly to argue with. I mean. If someone asks me, do, do you think we made a turn in the country with the Chauvin um, verdict? And I said, the day it happened, I said, give it a few days. I didn't know um, 
two or three more, more people of color would have been shot and killed at the hand of police, you know, in, in, in a week's time. So they called me up again two days ago, yesterday or something, and they said, I'm starting to see what you're talking about. You see, the thing about what we, we have, like right now, eyes are being opened. You know, people are seeing that there are certain things in the system, like there are not, I don't think there are, are more bad police officers than good. I think there are more good police officers who actually love the work and really dedicate their lives to do it. However, the institution of, of criminal justice and law enforcement has a way of not holding accountability. You cannot be a doctor or a lawyer and have malpractice or do something that either the medical the AMA is going to cancel you, the board, the legal board is going to take your license. There's a certain thing of accountability that is not um, consistent with criminal justice. You know, if I, if, if I left an instrument as a surgeon in the body of a person, I'm losing my license. There is no one going to go say, oh, don't worry about it. Let's take care of the right, doctor. No, right. you're, you're done. Right. Yeah. You're, you're totally. done. And so like with a police officer who guns, and again, people always say, yeah, well, she was running at this person with a knife. True. But you're dealing with an emotional person versus a trained person. An emotional person who called to ask for help. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. And so if, if I'm a trained doctor and everyone is around me is losing their mind, I don't have the luxury to lose my mind as well. I have mm -hmm. to stay focused. I have to stay focused at the job at hand and try to save a life. So I think a lot of times the institution gives a green light for mediocrity. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few. You cannot be in a job where lives are at risk without a different. That's why you get paid what you get paid as a lawyer or a doctor. And maybe if we adjust the system and reform a system, not get rid of the police officers. And that's why I think a lot of times individuals say, oh, reform police is synonymous with get rid of police. Don't nobody want to get rid of police. I'm from the hood. I'll tell you straight up. Police get rid. This is the, we in the wild, wild west right now. I don't want that. I don't want my parents to be in a danger. But reforming a system is saying you're going to be held accountable. Maybe we should pay police officers more. Not maybe. We should pay police officers and teachers more. They're at the front lines, you know? And so it's just a lot of things that's coming up. And, and um, yeah, this systemic stuff, we really got to address it or else we're going to continue down this, this, this bullshit with, with all this bullshit. Right. Uh, yeah. It's meant to protect itself. And it's built that way. It's built to protect itself. And yeah, the 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 credentializing or the institu the institution, you know, credentializes and and gives uh, uh, credibility uh, to those. And then and then the system is the structure and the institution's impact on the individual. So when somebody pulls out a gun and shoots, they just go through this procedure, this system that the structure is built to to uphold that the institution credentialize <laughs> so so you know mm -hmm. hey Derek don't worry about it you know uh, you know and and they and they figure it out and they've been validated you know over and over again for murder now we're talking about the the Chauvin verdict right now yeah. and um I want to take us another Hamilton turn of the stage a little back in time <laughs> and so what you were doing you were in denver you're doing 
performance work in, in different aspects and, and venues. And then what happened in 2020 for you that yeah. then led you to the, this moment that we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. So in my story, I was telling you about how I came back from California and started to do music and I wanted to do music, you know, in a way different than the, the experience that I was having in California running around with these uh, uh, cats that uh, really wanted to exploit the, the, the polarized condition or, or idea of who black people are. And I wanted to do something different. And uh, I really leaned back into, you know, using biblical references and doing that sort of thing with MCN as, as apostle. I started an organization called the Colorado Hip Hop Coalition, where we did after school programs around the four elements of hip hop and, uh, you know, work with 10,000, over 10,000 youth over a course of like five or six years and, and raise a quarter of a million dollars doing that sort of work. And I got in a band called Heavyweight Dub Champion, which was actually out of Boulder. And we, you know, uh, took off and, and toured the US and Canada and even did a European tour at one point. And um, we got a big break where a Los Angeles attorney wanted to uh, sign us. And the, the only thing that we needed to do was form a business in the name of the band. And so when it came down to forming the, the business, I, had, I was in this band for nine years from uh, 98 to 2007. And um, when it came down to, to organize who was in the band for the, for the business, they told me that I was not in the band, that I was just a featured artist. And I said, well, then pay me like you pay the featured artist then. Pay me like you pay KRS-One and pay, pay me like you pay, you know, uh, you know, Killer Priest and, and, and cats like that. And they didn't have that money for me. So I quit and left the music industry really bitter and angry. And so for about a year and a half, uh, so so I didn't do any music. I was done with, with performing. And my friend Donnie Betts, who is a Emmy Award winning uh, director and uh, a documentarian, you know, I kept telling him, man, I'm going to write a play. I'm going to write a play. I'm going to write a one man show. And he was like, write it, write it. And so I wrote Who Killed Jigaboo Jones in 2013. And it was sold out. I mean, I mean, Emily lines around the block. It was nuts. Wow. People came to see it. Wow. It was. I played seven different characters. I leaned back into wow. my, my speech and debate. I leaned back into that training, mm -hmm. and I brought that out. And I did a ninety-minute, two-act, seven-character, one-man show. Wow. Um, and I called it Who Killed Jim? Exhausted even thinking about yeah, that. That's was, incredible. It was nuts, you know. It, wow. it, it was um Who Killed Jigaboo Jones, you know, a one-man mockumentary on the hip hop industrial complex. Mm. And so after doing that one-man show, I realized, you know what, I'm gonna do theater. You know, I had honed my skills as a writer. Um, to the point from from writing songs, writing albums, you know, and so a good verse is no different than a good monologue. A good uh, song is no different than a scene, right? And a good scene and an album 
you know, from front to back, it's like writing a good story or a good or a good script for a, for a play. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was able to do that. So I started to do to write plays and produce them on my own terms and stage them on my own terms. Well, fast forward to 2020, um, I just finished up a play and folks said, hey, let's let's work together and doing some more stuff. And uh, a friend of mine approached me who was, he was chairing this campaign for this brother named Rivero Stinnett, who was uh, beat up at Union Station in 2018 and left with permanent brain damage. And I was like, okay, well, I'll write a poem or I'll do a, you know, do something for you, you know, something performance wise for you. And they really wanted me to lead the campaign. They wanted me to use my my profile or my uh, my following to galvanize uh, awareness and support around Rivero's case. Um, Like what we were talked about before, you know, in terms of, you know, performance art and and uh, community organizing having similar elements or components that make it successful and so i was like i really don't want to chair the campaign and he's a white cat and he was like a black man really needs to lead this because rivero is black and this is a issue of racism and i was quite angry at, at him for you know telling me how I needed to process my trauma, how I needed to deal with racism in my, you know, in my community. In my, mm. I was not ready to take this on. Mm. Then George Floyd was murdered. Like months later, mm. George Floyd is murdered. And folks, like I told you, I grew up in Longmont. Folks were calling me out the woodwork. White people were calling me day and night. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> White folks was calling me. And and you know what? Honestly, it was to validate their racism. Jeff, mm-hmm. I know you, you're black. Help me process this. Mm. Do some labor for me. <laughs> Do some labor for me. Do some emotional labor uh-huh. for me. And this one woman that I hadn't talked to since middle school, since the eighth grade, wanted to tell me, called me up, you know, found me on Facebook. We were friends on Facebook. We friend, friends on Facebook, but we didn't talk or nothing. She asked for my number, calls me up and talks to me. This is just horrible. She said, I want to tell you about the three times that I use the N-word in my life. I was like, I don't. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about this. Why do you? What? The- <laughs> so I hung up on her. I hung up on her and she's texting me, text, 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 just texting me multiple texts about how she's crying. She's upset. She doesn't know what she did wrong. She just doesn't understand. She wants to do something. If I've got a production coming up, she'll back it for me. She'll she'll be the producer. She'll pay for it. Anything. Please just, you know, just make me feel okay about about my racism. You know, Mm. and I was so frustrated 
I was frustrated with the Justice for Rivero campaign because they were calling me six six times a day asking me to take on more and more responsibility. White folks are calling me out the woodwork asking me how can they get involved in social justice? And I want to learn how to be a better ally. And I was just like, well, these allies is what got us here. <laughs> All this allyship. We don't need allies. We need abolitionists. And don't pretend like there isn't a prime example in history of when uh, people from all socioeconomic backgrounds and people from all ethnicities came together to dismantle a racist institution. Stop pretending like there's no example in history where that did not happen. So mm -hmm. that is what we're looking at. We need abolitionists. And that was the thing that was just ringing in my head and so I went rogue. I hijacked the Justice for Rivero campaign. Um, <laughs> I, I said, okay, if I'm going to, to chair the campaign, then it's going to go my way, that I'm going to do it the way I'm going to do it. So I said, well, we're going to use the power of storytelling. We're going to tell his story. So we started with a public service announcement. We released it on July 4th. And we backed it up with a website. If you've ever been brutalized by Allied Universal Security Services at RTD, please tell us your story. And, um, you know, uh, we held a press conference and we gathered a research team together to do research on Allied Universal Security Services on the egregious, violent, brutal history and pathology of this multi-billion dollar corporation. So we went to work. I, you know, I, I, you know, used my email list. I used all of the things from Emancipation Theater to, to create this project of Emancipation Theater called From Allies to Abolitionists, where we're going to tell stories. White folks, you want to know how to do social justice work? You want to get involved in anti-racist work? There's stuff right here in your backyard you can plug into. So mm -hmm. that was my thinking. Mm -hmm. That was my logic. Mm -hmm. And so we plugged right into the Justice for Rivero campaign and then white folks showed up. They was at, yeah. they was at the RTD uh, uh, board meetings talking about you need to pay Rivero Stinnett for his damage, for his permanent brain damage. You need to fire this company. This, you know, this company has a pathology of brutalizing people of color all around the country. They showed up and they showed up and, and, um, fast forward to the end of the 90 days, the city council had a, a contract that they were renewing for Allied Universal at the Western complex, the where the stock show place, where the, the, the complex, mm -hmm. what is it called? The Western, where they do the stock show. Anyway, yeah, that was a uh, emergency homeless shelter for COVID. And so... Allied was was the security there and their contract was up for renewal. City count. We showed up. We were the only people on the docket speaking on public comment. It was all from allies to abolitionists and they all oh, wow. we, we shut it down and city council voted to reject that uh, contract. Uh, wow. And, and and Allied Universal Security Services gave made Rivero Stinnett a millionaire. 
and gave him a Whoa. and gave him uh, his settlement. And so that's we, awesome. So we knew the power of storytelling. We knew that if we shared yeah. Rivero's story with this community, there was no way that they were going to allow Denver to continue to function like that. Right. And so, right. Um, so yeah. And then, so after that, I was like, okay, we've got a working, workable model. Um, and how we that know- That is a powerful, you, that, that is powerful organization that you did right there. I'm just yeah. really, that's, that's just awesome. Well, we didn't do it all alone, of course. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you exactly specifically what we did. We simply raised, we used art and we raised the story in the news cycle. We elevated it in the news cycle. So what happened, mm-hmm. how it all played out was as we were um, lobbying city council and lobbying um, RTD to fire Allied Universal Security Service, uh, I wrote a play. I wrote a play called I Am Rivero, the story of Rivero mm-hmm. Stinnett. And so we we did a multimedia performance art socially distanced performance piece uh, uh-huh. around Rivero's story. And we uh-huh. used RTD's words against them. And so we got a lot of press and reviews of the production. And so uh-huh. the, the reviews and the articles referenced Rivero. Then right. this white man, a Trump supporter was murdered by a contracted security officer when there was these two opposing uh, rallies going on downtown. This uh, contracted security officer was working for Nine News and he shot a man who was antagonizing him who was a Trump supporter. That man died. So when that article came out on the front page, they referenced Rivero's incident in the same article and then referenced the play. Mm. And so at that point, Allied Universal Security was now wrapped up in this story around security officers, you know, so they knew they had to do something. So by raising the awareness and the support, by elevating in in the news cycle, was the linchpin that made them force them to make a move. So that's it's so interesting like that that the way that that story played out is that it shows that again justice it's for everyone. You know, this is not just about like this is we're talking about elevating society for everyone who's living in society right, right. and that you know just the identities of the people involved in that right. helped bring that home and the press was able to connect those dots and make it a this is something that that helps everyone this is about you know absolutely so yeah black folks you know we're like you know we don't okay white folks you don't speak up don't do this there's a whole lot of confusion in uh, the social justice world where, where, you know, a lot of times what happens is uh, the white person will come with their resources and organizing and they will lead something 
and then really, you know, come in with the cape, you know, with the white savior complex, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and so there's confusion because when black folks say, Hey, we don't, we don't want you coming in. We can organize ourselves. Then white folks feel like, Oh, it's not my place to participate in social justice. And mm-hmm. so that was something that I kept getting confronted with when I was doing this organizing. But you know, that when Steph, when uh, that woman who had, who had uh, called me and was like, I just want, I'll do anything, you know, just let me help. I, I, I clicked from the, my anger to like, okay, I understand that people actually need guidance. They actually need an understanding of how to navigate this. So I was like, okay, the problem is we go from the voting booth to the protest. And in between, we're just at the Bronco game. (laughs) And, and, you know, we need to be present, you know, for these public comments. We need to show up to city council to know, uh, for them to know where we stand so that so that what what doesn't happen in between the voting booth and the protest that that developer or whoever with the big 10 foot tall checkbook walking in saying, well, this is how it's going to go. This is what's going to work. We need to be there and be present constantly. So now from Allies Abolitionists, we have a debate team. We call them the debate team and they show up to city government uh, public comment, uh, city government meetings every week, every week. We got white mm-hmm. folks standing up and pointing out the uh, the disparities of the policies. Um, so mm-hmm. after the Justice for Rivero campaign, we rolled right into fourth quarter of 2020. And I said, well, let's focus on economic inequality, particularly these folks who are in these encampments who are having their tarps and their tents, their blankets and their sleeping bags taken away thrown in a dumpster, along with life-saving medication, along with insulin and and stuff like that, and then not given shelter, not giving their possessions back, losing contact with their caseworkers who are trying to provide service, only to be swept again two weeks later, you you know, back to the other location. So, you know, so let's approach this. So, you know, we identified who the target was in our in our power analysis, that it was the mayor who had the ability to reallocate funds and to, um, you know, stop these uh, so-called sweeps. We call them traumatic displacements because that's what they mm-hmm. really are. It's people that are traumatized mm-hmm. who have formed their, you know, communities in the most vulnerable position that they've ever been in in their lives and then displace them from that and displace them from that until they don't have anything and the likelihood of hypothermia, the likelihood of COVID, the likelihood of, you know, any of the diseases, shellagosis or hepatitis, any of the diseases that they attribute to not being able to wash your hands just, you know, escalates. So uh, we targeted the mayor. We called the campaign message to the mayor campaign. And, um, you know, we joined forces with Denver Homeless Out Loud. And 
we didn't get enough traction. We weren't getting the traction that we were getting with Rivero. Like people were exhausted. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so I reached back into my bag of tricks and I, and I, uh, contacted some of my old school hip hop, uh, friends and rivals and whatnot. And we put together a track <laughs> called message to the mayor. And, you know, we released that on local radio and we, you know, it was an instant classic. It was a hit. People were, people loved it, especially because I think it was the hook it was the chorus, you know, that we definitely used the mayor's name, Mayor Hancock, the streets need you. You promised to do something, but we don't believe you. Mayor Hancock, the city, it needs you. We, you promised to do something, but we don't see you. And um, so we called him out by name. And then again, the uh, music critics, uh, you know, reviewed it and started. Oh, right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and just elevated it. And so we, we were back to, to square one. We backed that one up with a report, you know, of how much mm -hmm. money are they spending on these sweeps and how much of that could have gone to permanent housing. And um, Teresa Marchetta, the, the mayor's spokeswoman, you know, reached out and they are all reaching out. And uh, just a couple months ago, um, city council voted $800,000 to go to safe outdoor spaces. So incredible. So, yeah. So you've got an equation here that's like really working storytelling and it's a, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. Yeah. And that is, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I'm, I'm, I'm having a personal phenomenal. experience of like, Oh my gosh, I am connected to someone who's really doing amazing work right now. Like, yeah, how can I yeah. support you? Like, it's well, really inspiring. You. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that. That's amazing. I just the work. Yes, you're so much more than a rapper. You're um, you have your your thumb, and you have the like Emily said, you have the formula for culture. You know, mm -hmm. and you know music, art, storytelling. I mean, media is such a powerful conduit for everything that we do. Uh, man, people at large, not just people of color, but people at large love are very visual or very auditory, you know, and, mm -hmm. and they love mm -hmm. that when you hit someone's ears and you, you, you invoke emotion visually, it's like it's a different type of activism. Like, can you imagine the kind of effect if we had Facebook doing Martin Luther King and Malcolm X's day? That would be a different type of monster. The civil rights movement, when Emmett Till was 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 you know George Floyd, George Floyd would have it would have looked like nothing if we saw if if Facebook was a, in existence during Emmett Till's day, mm -hmm. you know. And so, just what you're using to to push a culture is to me is really phenomenal, and I appreciate the work, you know. Um, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, social commentary in art is is nothing new. And, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. taking a nod from uh, the docuseries When They See Us, you know, that led to that woman being fired from her position at that university. What was the other one? Tiger King. That led to some some people going to jail. But, you know, they yeah. used that documentary 
you know, to raise the awareness and support. And at that point, you know, um, they had to, they had to, you know, face the music. I mean, so utilizing art and media in that powerful way to tell real stories that are affecting real people, the tangible that you could reach out and touch. Rivero, you know, he's just a guy up the street who's fantastic artist who had his life taken away. And, and, and yeah. people were just in a, you know, panic after George Floyd is like, we can't believe this. How do I get involved in stopping this? And I was like, look right there. There's something right here that is happening. And this brother is alive, you know? So, so let's not panic once, once, once people are, are, are dead, you know, let's, let's, let's get their back now. And so um, yeah. we have moved on to our third campaign and our third campaign mm, is elevate the students. So we're mm -hmm. working now with this student group, uh, student voice and leadership. And uh, we just, we just coached them and got them all the young people to do public comment at the school board. So mm. student voice and leadership has been this, is this organization within DPS that has been in existence since 2017. And the young people have repeatedly asked for um, cultural and ethnic studies in the curriculum. They've asked for diversity among staff, particularly the teachers. They've asked for more mental health support. And those demands will lead to having more tangible, uh, uh, authentic, reciprocal, um, yeah. intentional relationships with school, with uh, teachers, teachers and students. And mm -hmm. they've been asking for this since 2017 and DPS has not moved the needle on it. DPS is one of the biggest employers in Denver and, um, so Denver Public and it is, schools, I think it, DPS. Yeah. Denver Public Schools. Yes. DPS, Denver yeah. Public Schools. And uh, I think it is the largest real estate owner in um, huh. in Denver. So it actually has a whole, it wields a whole lot of power. And so it affects mm -hmm. you whether you have students or not, if you have young people or not. And so we are uh, having the students back. We're, you know, we did the research around all of the requests and we released a report on that. We're in the process of putting together a PSA. We're gonna interview each one of these students. And uh, you know, we're gonna tell the, we're gonna tell their story, you know. Yeah. And looks like around June, July, they'll be selecting a new superintendent. So our mm -hmm. intention with this campaign is to have impact on that uh, superintendent selection. Mm -hmm. I, I <laughs> just love the completely holistic approach to to this you know you're looking at every single angle organizing focusing on the exact topics leveraging people who are hungry to have their opinion i mean it's just really an amazing example of amazing community organizing and just applaud Thank you, you. <laughs> Um, Courtney's cheering Courtney for our, our, our listeners. Courtney's in his, his car today. 
<laughs> had some technical issue in the house. So Courtney's uh, yeah. tuning in from, we're, we're just making it work though. Oh, we, we got to. I'm, I'm glad I did. This yeah. is um, a, an episode that uh, it would have been very detrimental to miss. You know, this is amazing. Oh, so uh, um, I'm glad, glad to push through and, and we're here. Thank so you. Thank you. Me yeah. too. Shoot. I'm glad too. <laughs> <laughs> so I am sure that so many folks are asking, you know, how, how do we work with you? How do we support you? You know, we have a lot of folks listening from Colorado, but also internationally as well. So um, yeah. How do they connect and support your work? So Thank you for that. Um, I super appreciate that. And, you know, we have to, in order to keep this going, you know, don't want to be solely reliant on foundations for, uh, for funding and funding, yeah. funding support. In fact, in order to keep this work pure, in order to keep this work true to itself, it takes mm -hmm. people power. And yeah. so you can go to emancipationtheater.com and become a patron. Mm -hmm. We have a Patreon mm. uh, set up and you can become a patron at the $10, uh, $20 or $30 level. And we have uh, a newsletter that we publish uh, at the, you know, that we, uh, for all of our members uh, at the $20 level, you can receive uh, 50% off of our um, classes that we teach. You know, we're teaching everything from the activist 101 with, uh, from Allies Abolitionists to the Emancipation Theater stuff. We do uh, an improv uh, workshop called Role Play as Ritual. It's not your typical um, improv workshop where quirky, awkward kids in, in thrift store clothes are, you know, <laughs> You know, give me a word. Yeah, give me a, part of that. Give me a color. <laughs> there, it's not that at all, but but more so looking at your triggers, looking at what obstructs you, and um, and 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 using those things to tell your story and 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 that way. So that and also the Third Eye Theater script writing class. You know, I have a script writing class that I do one on one with folks virtually. And if, you know, you have a story that you want to tell and um, but you have never taken on uh, script writing, I can guide you through the seven basic plots and we can use some um, mm. archetypes, you know, in order to create your characters and give your characters nice balance and, uh, and depth. And, um, and we use and we also use etymology, like when you name a character, why did you name the character that? And, and what does that name mean? Mm. And, and does that name then therefore inform the dialogue? So using all of those mm. elements we do in the script writing class. Um, and then for the $30 level, you can get uh, two for one tickets to any of our productions and we will get productions back up and going. It's gonna happen. It's soon, gonna happen. Soon enough. <laughs> and yeah, for folks that are not in, in Colorado, we'll be doing that stuff all on our YouTube channel, Emancipation Theater on the YouTube channel. So we'll be putting that stuff up for there too. So yeah, that's the work that we could do if people want to support that way. If you are in town, you know, you can join from Allies Abolitionists and you can join the research team. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you're not uh in town, you can still join the research team. You could still be a part of the, the media team. Um, you could still be part of the debate team if we're doing stuff, you know, virtually. 
um, if, if you want to mm -hmm. get mm -hmm. this procedural guide and our, our modality and how we do this, and you want to start a from allies to abolitionist chapter in your community, you know, I, I'd love to talk to you about that too. Uh, I've been talking to Pedro about doing that in Boulder. And so Pedro Silva, one of our first yes, guests. Pedro yeah. Silva, yeah. Awesome. So I've been talking to Pedro about that. And so, you know, yeah, that's that's how you can uh, get involved and support us. Please, emancipationtheater.com. Uh, you can email me at info at emancipationtheater.com. Um, that's how you can, can get involved, plugged in. I love it. Awesome. 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 Oh, I love it. I love, I love the conversation and the like super action orientedness, you know, the like, let's not just sit around and talk about it. It's uh, uh, amazing. Amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for joining yeah. us today. I really, really appreciate thank it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, man. Like this was amazing. You 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 really lifted my spirits today. Uh, I needed it, you know. And um, I really appreciate the, like Emily said, the action oriented, solution oriented work that you do. Um, and I, as an activist myself, uh, I definitely hope we can work together on some other things um, in upcoming in the future. And yeah, let's let's stay let's stay connected. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, man, you um, just up the rock. So you know, I mean, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> up the <laughs> rock. I'll, I'll I'll come down to you. We got some stuff to do, man. All right, you know let's I mean? do. Let's do you, some work. Yeah, yeah. You start you started talking about medicine, and then now you already know. Woo, you in my lane now. So we gotta I gotta jump in the car with you. That's let's see where we going. You know, and so <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Currently, I'm working with awesome. the Center for African-American Health, and we're doing an assessment and brainstorm around a design for a curriculum to do advocacy in the community around uh, health and health disparities. And so hopefully after the Elevate the Students campaign, that the health uh, will be our next uh, campaign that we do. So I'm, I need to be okay. involved in we that. We just made a powerful I need to connection. be involved in that. Okay. Do not forget my name. Do not forget the number or email address. If you need it, please, I want to be involved. Okay. In I'm putting you out there. I'm putting you on notice. <laughs> if I'm not involved in that, you thought you was in some knuckleheads in LA and California. You're in trouble. You're I'm, in trouble. I'm, I'm, coming to, I'm coming to find you. Like, come on, man. That's it. Deal. All right. Deal. Awesome. Let's do it. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.